All right, I want to paint an absolutely dire Ryder Cup scenario for you. Imagine it's Friday in Italy. Team USA does great in the first session. Zach Johnson has a big job ahead of him. He's got to decide who's going out in that second session. It's the most important job. So he sits down with his vice captain. He gets his pen out. All of a sudden, Scotty Scheffler bursts in through the door. Justin Thomas is with him. They say, captains, we're hungry. Where's the food? Where's lunch? We can't go out there. We haven't eaten. So all of a sudden, Zach Johnson has to throw everything aside. He's got to go figure out where in Rome you can get spaghetti or whatever else you can get. That can't happen, right? What a nightmare that would be. Zach Johnson needs people to handle the logistics for him so he can focus on the big picture stuff. The same is true when it comes to your business. Your team can make or break your game. You need the perfect pairing to support your goals and drive your business forward. Belay can help you find your perfect pairing. For over a decade, Belay has helped match busy leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, people like you with high quality executive assistance. Their US-based specialists will help take care of the details so you can focus on what matters most. You need people to email management, you need someone to take care of your calendar, do research, client communication. They can do it all. The list of things the Belay executive assistant can do for you goes on and on. So if you're wondering how to get started with an assistant or what Belay can do for you, they have a free resource just for listeners of this podcast. Text GOLF, G-O-L-F, to 55123 to download the top 25 things an executive assistant can do for you. That's G-O-L-F to 55123. Do more of what you love and less of what you don't with a Belay executive assistant. Come on! For allied rivals, all roads lead to Rome and eternal glory. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Ryder Cup Radicals podcast hosted by the Sambuca Boys. First up, we got, is it is it birthday boy incoming? Are you a birthday boy now? Were you a birthday boy, Joel? Come on. Uh, birthday story? boy in two days, three days. Uh, well, congratulations. We won't use your nickname in honor of, of let's we'll call you old man this entire podcast. How's that sound? <laughs> I actually like old man Beal. That's better than sleeping. Old man and then right alongside him, of course, Shane Ryan. How are you, Shane? I'm doing great. And yeah, Joel, I mean, Joel has such a young energy for a man who's about to turn 63 that, yeah, I just think, like, he's a model for all of us. Happy birthday, Joel. People call me the, the, the Freddy couples of my generation. So, yes, I, I see where you're coming from on that. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, even though it's, uh, you know, Joel's getting up there in age, I mean, what better place to start than maybe like an obit for Shane Ryan's Lu Ludwig Aberg takes, you know, I mean, like <laughs> Shane, like, you wrote in your column, uh, little Mia Culpa on Ludwig, who of course was the headliner confirmed captain's pick. So let's just start right there. I mean, what do we what do we make of this? This is this is kind of incredible, I think. All right, can I just say I it's a great question and I don't mean to answer a question that wasn't asked, but I just want to lead off by saying we just got done. This is, you know, Monday at 10 a.m. We just got done watching that captain's pick selection show. I have never in my life seen a more stunning contrast between the wholesome midwestern humility of zach johnson and the me first glitz and glamour selfish glory boy <laughs> attitudes of all of team europe i'm disgusted by them no, 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 i've never been more certain in my life that the u.s is going to dominate them because they are just like john wayne staring off into the sunset against the frills and glamour and the circus atmosphere of team europe you know what, you're right. Let's bench Ludwig for a second <laughs> to unpack this. Because I thought, you know, in this Slack channel that we've got going between Joel and Shane and I, those guys were just ripping on the broadcast. They're like, oh, this is so bad. Oh, it's so much worse than Team USA's broadcast. And I'm like, am I watching the same thing? I'm not saying this was a stunning piece of television, but it was polished. It was clean. It was paced well, 30 minutes in and out. You know, there was a bit of drama it was at least produced. The other one was just a Zoom call, basically, that was broadcast live. I mean, what what, what am I misunderstanding here? You're misunderstanding that uh, the British Empire is over. All this uh, pompousness, <laughs> ostentatiousness, uh, talk, acting like there's this is some regal thing when the, the 
the rest of the world has passed you by. That that is what that show was. I, I can't think of a perfect avatar for what Europe used to be and what it thinks it still is. And that stupid show we just watched. And I, I thought the awkwardness <laughs> of America was bad. Man, this this was even worse somehow. And that's not the hangover talking whatsoever. <laughs> I like that I came. My, my take was like at least 20% or probably 40% ironic, but Jill just came in. It was just absolutely taking down all of the UK. Uh, I love it. No, I'd be I, more sympathetic to that take if the US broadcast wasn't like a Zoom call with technical difficulties. That's called that's called noble. That's called noble incompetence. Call Luke. <laughs> God. Oh, well, no, you know, I actually, I actually did think Luke. It was, it was funny because it started, and I'm like, oh, they're doing the reality show approach. We haven't seen that since Tom Watson and Glenn Eagles, right? Like the, the slow trickle. But I do, I do think actually, you know, I, I think in the end it was paced well. They did their interviews. That was all kind of boring. I, that's my least favorite part about captains' picks, where the captains like, oh, he's a great player and has done this and that. Uh, but no, I think they they got in and out quickly. It wasn't like you know the thing where. The silhouettes were a little bit much, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, but it was... I wasn't a huge fan of the highlight package. But that's what Sky Sports is, you know, sure, it like hypes sure, it sure, up. Sure. Yeah. I thought it was very on brand for them. I did appreciate Sepp Stracker calling in from Birmingham, Alabama. That was, I think, my personal, personal favorite. Hi, fellas. I'm so thrilled to be on your Ryder Cup team. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what an oh, honor man. to play for the, what do they call themselves? The Great Kingdom? Uh, the Great Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It was it was a good program. It was good, and Luke Donald's really good and all that. And uh, okay, so Luke, sorry to sidetrack. Um, yeah, I here's what I thought for the entire Ryder Cup cycle. Even though people, I I should probably shout out Tron Carter here. Who, yeah, he was like he's like my daddy today. <laughs> like Tron Carter was saying it the whole time, and he was upset at me that I was ruling it out. And in the end, he's right, and we have to we have to admit it when it happens. Um, yeah, like credit where it's due. Tron over at No Up really nailed this. Like top yeah. to bottom, nailed. You know, he, he, he spotted Ludwig as a talent early. He said, you know, and I think the anti-Ludwig Ryder Cup argument, anti is the wrong word, but I was a Ludwig skeptic just because, and we'll get into it a bit, that this kind of pick has never happened before. And period. that was, and that was never happened before. And ever. that was my whole thing, Luke. It was totally unprecedented. I actually think it's a great pick. And back when I was saying it was never going to happen, I still thought it would have been a great pick then. The stats support it. And and we should mention, he was on even before he won, based on what everyone was saying. By Friday, every, we all knew he was on. So the fact that he went and won the Omega Europe masters wasn't the thing that got him on the team so as i wrote in uh in my cupatology piece this is like the Moneyball era in it's like the the most extreme form that we've seen because i could not imagine luke donald telling someone like adrian moronk who's won three times or any of like the more established european tour players i'm sorry you're not in we're taking this guy who is you know 23 he's never had a you know professional win until sunday it just never seemed, played in the major. Never, never played and, in the major. Right, never played First time in the major. Ever. Exactly. And so I couldn't see him practically doing that. I think to, to have the courage to do it based on the, this guy's profile and how good he is, I think it was a great pick and a really forward-looking pick, obviously a stats-heavy pick, right? So we're in this new money ball kind of era. I, I give Luke Donald a ton of credit for that. I'm going to – I have issues with another pick he made, and I have issues with leaving Adrian Moronk out, but I think Ludwig being on the team – is a stroke of genius, exactly what they needed. And I, yeah, I just think like, I, I am fully impressed. I couldn't envision it happening. That was my limitation. I got it wrong, but I think it's a great pick and I'm, I'm glad I was wrong. So Joel, we'll get to the other picks, but but Joel, just staying on Ludwig for a second. This to me, I mean, I may botch this analogy, but this to me reminds me of when like an NFL team or whatever other American team will draft a guy weirdly high because they would just say, you know, we really believe in it. We think this guy is really, really good. And so they're picking him early. And so what they did with Ludwig here is, they're not just saying this guy's maybe one of the best, you know, European players right now this second. That's what you do when you pick someone. You're trying to win tomorrow, obviously. But Luke Donald said that this guy's a generational talent, that he's a superstar for the future. I mean, he said that he's going to make the next eight Ryder Cups if he didn't make this one. What Luke Donald effectively said today is that this guy's John Rahm. Just, just wait for a moment. You know, that's what he's, that's, I, I, I mean, am I understanding that argument correctly, Joel? A little bit, a, a couple of things. One, 
definitely credit to Donald. This is something that we always talk about wanting the Americans to do on that last pick of picking somebody, not just for the team right now, but for the team for the future. That's, I think, a little bit of what this pick is. Although I think it's actually more of the Hogar pick than this because Aberg, since he's turned pro, no one is better than strokes gained TD Green in the world over that span. So this isn't necessarily just a pick off potential of what he could do. This is what he has done for the last three months. So I think there's a little bit more results even before this past weekend than we may give him credit for. Um, at the same time, as good as Moronk has been over the past 16 months, I actually feel like this is a pretty defensible pick uh, in the sense that this is – I mean, going wrong, Moronk obviously won at this at the Ryder Cup site just a couple months ago. He also hasn't played that well, though, in major championships. He hasn't really played. He's, he's had really high highs, but the lows have been pretty drastic, too. And I think if you're going down at Luke Donald, I think this is an easier sell, not only to the rest of the team, but to all of Europeans backers. It's someone that you can get excited about, someone you can get behind. And let's say if the, the you know, it just game theorying this out, if Moronk would have been picked and he would and they would have lost and Moronk would have played poorly, there would have been a lot of, man, where was Aver, where, where was Hogard in terms of the second guessing? I don't think you're going to see a lot of second guessing when it comes to these guys. If they lose, they pick well. Like, well, they're young guys and he really didn't have much of a shot. The, the Monday morning quarterbacking won't be as strong for Moronk as it was for Aberg or Hogard. So I, I think it's definitely a brazen call, but Sneaky, I think it's actually the safest call of, of what he had in his options. But maybe, maybe I'm, maybe that's too much of a mental gymnastics on my part. But I think it's a sneaky, smart pick by Donald. No, I think I, I definitely, I, I, I do agree. And the thing with Aberg is that he's clearly like an incredible player, and we kind of saw him coming to some respect, right? The reason I was struggling to wrap my head around being able to literally make the pick was just because it's just a bit of a it, it could be perceived as a bit of a tough look, right? Like, let's say Aberg, like we all said on this last podcast, if Aberg wins next week, he's in. You know, you got you got to pick him if he wins. It was kind of a win. But with Nikolai Hogarth playing well, with Moronk popping into contention, with the course form stuff going on in the background, for a guy who is just on the scene this minute, it's just a, it's like like Shane had you had said earlier. It's it's unprecedented. Like literally, Faldo, Sevi, all the greats in Europe. No one has made a Ryder Cup team this fast. No one's made a Ryder Cup team before playing in a major. Nobody has had such a short period of time since turning pro and making a Ryder Cup team. The closest comparison I could think of was Sergio Garcia in 1999. Mm. So. But when you remember what Sergio Garcia was, he was 19 in 1999, but he won the British Arm, and then he turned, then he finished low arm at the Masters that year, then he turned pro, then he played in two more majors, and one of those was a second to Tiger Woods, and he qualified for the 1999 Ryder Cup automatically, you know, so, oh, so it yeah. was... Yeah. So it's like a, that that's as close as we've come to this. So it's a, both a huge testament to not just a Berg's performance right now and also what other people think of his talent in the future. But I mean, it's just, it's kind of mind blowing in terms of how unprecedented this is. And and it's really exciting. Right. Shane? Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, we speak, we talked about how politically that was the hardest thing. And I, I'm with Joel. It's definitely the smart pick. Um, politically, it was the toughest thing, but I think Luke Donald got kind of a break with, with him winning this week. From that yeah, angle, because, because he, like, he he was on the team either way, right? But it's it's nice to be like, well, yeah, he won. So now you, it's much harder for somebody to be like, well, this is ridiculous. You should you should you know give it to somebody who's more established or something. Well, it's like okay, they could still say that, but now we have the guy. The guy has a professional win now, so that's something. Yeah, I mean, Moron finished uh, 13 under a T13, right? Two back of Nikolai Hogard, who finished top. Five. If if Aberg and Hogarth, you know, finish at 15 under and in top five, and you maybe leave what like we thought at the time we leave Nikolai out in order to take home, then you know, even the commentators were saying, you know, these guys have been playing this tour. This is there was an article that was out in the Telegraph saying that oh, this could potentially undermine the integrity of the of the DP World Tour side of the qualification criteria. There's all these questions being asked. I do think it's the right pick and credit to Donald for not 
being afraid of doing it even before he win, even before Aberg won. But yeah, it's 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 a gutsy call for sure. Um, yeah, I, it's just incredible. And then I, uh, Joel, sorry, what were you going to say? No, I, I really think the only thing that would have messed not messed it up, things could have got sticky, is if Robert McIntyre didn't grab that last European uh, automatic qualifier spot because. It really seemed like he was going to be on the team. The more you hear from people around uh, around the DP World Tour, no matter how that played out, and I think that would have got really sticky because McIntyre's game has not been that good since the Scottish Open, and really just had a very small window. So I think more than a few people pointed out to just the DP World Tour's social account when McIntyre made the team, it was almost like Yon, Yon, it was almost like a shot at Yannick Paul after he had missed the cut. So I think that would have been really the only wrench in the equation on that front. Um, but yeah, I, I, don't get me wrong. This was, this is surprising yet. The more you dig into it, not a shock. Also kind of cool though. You, Luke, you mentioned earlier, this is a, a very much of a pick of a modern times. This is the first pick I can think of when it comes to the Ryder cup, where it's something that the fans really advocated for and won it. And yet maybe and their heart of hearts didn't think it was actually going to come to fruition. So kind of cool in that aspect that you see the, the professional game now starting to mirror a little bit of the conversation that fans have. Like, I put it this way. I don't think if the tables were turned, Zach Johnson would have made the, the same call. I think Zach Johnson would have definitely picked Moronk if he was in that shoes. And that's not a shot at Zach Johnson, but really credit for Luke Donald to thinking outside the conventional box. Um, yeah, I know the old boys club was a uh, criticism. I don't think it was a criticism many of us bought, but at the same time, p- picking the picks that Donald did pretty much fit that. Although Shane, I know there's there's a there's a major issue you had with one of his his picks. Yeah, let's get into that, Shane. So what's your what do you what what are you annoyed about? Well, okay, first of all, <clears throat> before we get into the Lowry stuff, which was where we're heading, the Robert McIntyre thing. You know, Data Golf just posted a chart of the all 24 players. You know, true strokes gained over the last three months, six months, 12 months. Robert McIntyre's last, okay? He's even below Justin Thomas in the last few months. So here's my big problem. The idea that he was going to make the team no matter what. We're praising Luke Donald and Team Europe for this forward-thinking Ludwig Aberg, Aberg, however you say his last name, uh, pick. If they were going to pick Robert McIntyre anyway, that's ridiculous. There's no way Robert McIntyre should have been on the team if he didn't automatically qualify which leads as a segue into the other pick that I'm looking at, Shane Lowry. Now, okay, Shane Lowry, the obvious contrast here is Justin Thomas, right? Justin Thomas got the pick based on more pedigree and everything, obviously, than recent form. Justin Thomas is 6-2-1 in the Ryder Cup. You know, we've said 16-5-3 when you added the President's Cup. Shane Lowry only played in one Ryder Cup. He went 1-2. There's almost like this perspective or this image that like he had this really great Whistling Straits Ryder Cup. And it's like, he didn't. Yeah, he was one and two, and that one match he won was a really close one. Uh, and so this is really interesting to me to pick Shane Lowry over someone like Adrian Moronk. Luke, you were the one who opened my eyes to the the concept of Moronk, how many birdies the guy makes, and what an asset he would be in four ball, especially. Put him in those four ball sessions, maybe with Aberg or somebody like that. Uh, instead, he's off the team and Lowry is on, and you kind of scratch your head going, what is the rationale for Lowry to make that team if it's not an old boys club, right? Like this old boys thing got hit. The U.S. got hit hard with it. Lowry, I mean, I guess he's got fire. I know he won the British Open and all that. But really, doesn't it come down to people liking him and people wanting him on the team? Maybe there's a statistical justification, but you're looking at that data golf thing. He's fourth from last, right? There's Straka, JT, and McIntyre below him. Two of those automatically qualified. Well, I, I guess Straka didn't automatically qualify, but he played well in the U.S. You know, Thomas, again, we're going on that incredible record. What's the justification for Lowry? Why is he in over Morong? I, I do not get it, and I think it stands in a stark contrast to the forward-looking moneyball pick of, of someone like Aberg. This is like the opposite. This is kind of like the bad old days in some ways. Well, the only thing I'd push back on there is that, so with the obvious caveat that like, the US, excuse me, the European team isn't as deep as the US team, right? Just in terms of top to bottom talent. Lowry clearly isn't playing well right now, but Lowry is also one of the best 10, 8, 6 maybe Europeans in the world right now. 
you know, like just in terms of pure ability, if you strip out four, which I know is a big thing, but you know, this guy has four, I believe, uh, top fives in majors, including his open win and the top 10 at the players too. I know you're like, oh, his, he didn't do too well at the last Ryder Cup, but no one did too well at the last Ryder Cup. And he was one of the rare, you got to research these bright spots where you can find them in some regard. And he really was one of those bright spots in Whistling Straits. Maybe this is a slight benefit of the doubt pick because obviously he's not playing so well. But that said, if you were to zoom out and you were to say, okay, over the next five years, three years, like Shane Lowry is probably going to outperform most other guys in most other Europeans in in the world right now. Like he's a better player at this moment in time and for the next three years than someone like Justin Rose, for instance, who who was an amazing player, but whose best days are behind him. So to me, it just comes off as, it, it just comes down to this balancing between inherent ability and this current moment in time in which his form is playing a factor. And, you know, I saw in some ways I do see the Justin Thomas comparison there. Uh, Obviously, Justin Thomas has more of a track record in terms of his Ryder Cup record and, and in terms of his form being, you know, just as bad, I guess. But I don't know. I don't have a problem with the Shane Lowry pick. It only flurried up because people are reading into Morant being left out and maybe reading too much into course form which we'll get into too. But I think that's ultimately what drove away from the Moronk sort of pick and into the Lowry lane. What do you think, Joel? No, I'm with you. I think the the only two other things I'd add, one, statistically, I know his his short game hasn't been there, especially over the past six months. However, if you look kind of up and down the roster, what Moronk brings, the European team kind of already has. They're not short on length. They're not, they're not short on, on ball striking. They're not really good around the greens, and despite what his stats have been this year, Shane Lowry has one of the best short games in golf. That's that's a perfect complement for this type, uh, for match play, um, match play competitions. That he's an ethical guy. That they're really short on veteran presence. I know he only has one Ryder Cup, but he is in his mid thirties. He's a guy who has been in big events before. I think you would rather have someone like that versus Moronk, who would be making his Ryder Cup debut, and you already have a handful of guys, especially going with Hogar, going with Straka, going um, with Aberg. You kind of already have a lot of the rookies there. You're you're good on that front. Um, I think if you're looking at just fit and team chemistry, Lowry, uh, I'm with you, Shane. Uh, I I think that this is the biggest one that could come back to buy him at the same time. I understand where Donald's coming from. Another thing to kind of keep in mind, and – you know, we, a lot of times you hear politics in terms of picks and what does it actually mean here? I had two different people explain this to me over the weekend. And, and Luke, you obviously know this firsthand. I don't think Americans realize the power of a European winning the Open Championship means to that continent. And Shane Lowry is kind of a made man. There's only so few guys who have pulled it off this century that he is one of them. Even though it happened in 2019, we really can't underestimate the power and gravitas that has within that system. So as weird as it sounds when it comes to a coin flip, and and that ha- you if it's if you're looking just Shane Lowry and, and Moronk, as weird as it sounds, something that he did four or five years ago actually is a nice little nod in his direction. But with that Open Championship, I mean the fix was in, right? The RNA said we have to have an Irish champion <laughs> in Northern Ireland. We wanted to be Rory; he couldn't make the cut, so everybody took a dive for Lowry, right? That's isn't that known? Isn't that kind of like accepted? <laughs> <laughs> obviously, obviously, I'm kidding. Nobody get angry at that. No, I think you guys both made really good arguments. And the other thing I'd say is that, you know, Luke Donald and, you know, everybody he has around and Paul McGinley and all his vice captains, they're very smart. So I'm sure there was a, a wise rationale for this. I guess the only thing I would say is that, and it's something I wrote, or I just tweeted out. I think no matter what Justin Thomas does in Rome, you know, including going 0-3 or whatever, I think it was a justified pick. This, I think... If Lowry goes 0-3 or something like that, I think Luke Donald could be in for some fair second-guessing. I think this one is questionable enough that there is like maybe a little bit of heat on him. Like This has got to work out. 
I think that's fair. No, I do think that's fair. And I think Lowry probably knows that too. Um, you know, I know it's a small it was a small thing, but it was interesting that he called into this uh, television event from a golf course. Like I get the feeling that he's just grinding right now. He knows <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot going on. The only thing I would say is the flip side of this argument is like, oh well, Moronk should have gone instead. I've you guys can vouch for me here because it's I've been a Moronk skeptic for a while. I was like, this guy's dining out on his two Italian Open performances, his T his T second and his win in his past three starts there and he really hasn't done much outside of that like at all really um he i taught i started talking myself into him about a week and a half ago because he made just eight birdies you know in what during one round and he just will routinely layer on six seven eight birdies around he makes so many of them because he's so boom or bust and in a rider cup situation you make eight birdies or six birdies during a round you're probably winning at least three four of those holes you know and you can he hits a little wild but you know our colleague jamie kennedy was saying you can maybe get around some of that with which holes he decides to tee off on etc etc so he's kind of a unique weapon and i was like okay i could see this i could see this but when you look at like nikolai hogard's italian open record it's basically identical you know, so in his past three starts, Moronk has a missed cut, a T second and a first. In his past three starts, Nikolai Hogard has a T5, a first and a T23, I believe. So very similar, except Nikolai's playing a little better right now. He's he's a little more, he's a little shorter off the tee, but a little more accurate off the tee. So I think ultimately they were like, well, this is kind of a like-for-like replacement. Also, for what it's worth, these Italian Open fields have not been the strongest fields in golf by any means, right? Like, it's not like Morong beat a world championship, like a a world championship class field. So I think it was almost like a like-for-like replacement. You go one way or the other, and Donald goes, ah, I'm going to go with this guy who's in form, right? And I completely agree. And I think that between those two guys, that was the right pick. Um, again, for me, Lowry would be the one that's the question mark. Can I just say three weeks ago, I asked you guys, why isn't Adrian Moronk? Why aren't some of these other guys in the ISPS Handa world invitational that have a chance to catch Robert McIntyre, Rob, Bob McIntyre showed up. I mean, the field wasn't strong. Dan Brown won, you know, the author of the Da Vinci code, he, he won the tournament. Uh, but really like if Moronk was there, there's a chance he could have won and had enough points. Like how bad do you want to make the Ryder cup? Right. So maybe, I don't know. I, I still puzzle just a little bit at that. I know it's like a dumb thing to actually care about, but there is like this small part of me that can't get over that. He, he just wasn't there. It is funny. Like, cause I do think Moronk was like just mentally in so many European fans' minds in they're like, Oh, this guy plays well at the Italian open. He makes a lot of birdies. He's been in around the 12, the eight for ages, like he's probably just going to get a pick. Aberg threw a bit of a wrinkle in this in terms of him playing so well, so quickly. And then clearly Donald, he he mentioned his round in Detroit that he played with Aberg and he was like blown away. So, you know, the combination of Aberg playing so well and continuing to play well and then winning and then Nikolai flurrying up real fast just meant that there was one spot less. And you're right, like this, even though I really like Robert McIntyre, just as a golfer and as a person, the optimized European team, I bet some stats guy would tell me, is probably Moronk instead of uh, Bobby Mack. And yeah, it comes down, it was really close between those two. And it just comes down to like one start here or there, and it could have made a difference. It also has to hurt, has to hurt Moronk that Fred Couples uh, said he was going to Rome. You know, on his radio show. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be tough. Went out, of, went out of his way to mention Adrian Rock. The thing I would add to that is, uh, yeah, like you were right. And I know we were guilty of it to an extent, too, of thinking Morocco which just kind of on the team and not thinking twice about it. I do think, though, part of that stemmed from not only his play, but the fact that what we just saw Hogard and Aberg, there's just not a precedent for that. So I think that was kind of in the back of our minds and justifying the Morocco pick. The fact that there weren't a lot of viable candidates outside of those, if you take Aberg and Hogard out. And the fact, too, I think this is really overlooked. And uh, Shane, I know you were on this probably earlier than anybody else. Morocco played really well at that Hero Cup. In fact, that was kind of the one name you heard of, man, this is the one guy who really showed off. <laughs> I feel bad from him at that point. Like, what's the point of holding that Hero Cup if he was the main guy that kind of shined in it? And it apparently didn't matter when it 
push came to uh, shit. Well, I, I would say Moronk. I just want a quick fact check. Moronk went two and two. Hoygaard went three zero and one to be just just to yeah. So Moronk was good and they liked him, but it wasn't like he was like a four and zero or something. And it was also, yeah, to that point, it was also more like a confluence of weird things happening that kept Moronk off this team. Bobby Mack squeaking into the DP World Points side of the qualifications by the skin of his teeth. Mm -hmm. Nikolai playing really well. Aberg winning. You know, like Shane Lowry being one of the boys. Even Justin Rose and Sepp Straka, like, not petering out their seasons. You know, I know Justin Rose didn't make the Tour Championship, but looked all right in the in the build up to it. So it's kind of like five or six things coming together, which ultimately is why he was just the last man out. I think. Do we? That's the one guy I wanted to mention, Rose. Do we think? I mean, he didn't play bad after winning at Pebble Beach, but you kind of look at his last five, six starts; they weren't great. Is that one that hey, we just need a veteran, a guy who hasn't been there, or we can't leave just like? Are, is there any worry, Luke, on your end of bringing Justin Rose to Rome? A little, because he oh, he's basically in because he finished in the top. He had two top tens, one at the Players and one at the PGA Championship. Two top tens in big events, what I mean. And then he won the at t Pebble Beach, but that's back in February. You know, that was a while ago. And then even though he finished, he, so he finished 20th, I think inside the top 20 in his last two starts. But again, limited fields, not the most impressive things. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of worry there. That said, I don't think he's going to be the Justin Rose role of past Ryder Cups. You know, he's not going to be trotted out there with Stenson all the time, an instant, like, ball striker fear factor type. The one thing that does make me feel pretty good at him, about him is that he's a really good iron player, which is important. And he's... A sneaky, like incredibly good putting. Like one of the one of the biggest success stories in terms of a player who's turned around his putting in recent history, and I mean that genuinely. I mean he, what was he? I'm looking at his stats now. He let he's 26th in strokes gained putting, 16th in putts per round, and he like leads the tour in putts from 25, yeah, from 20 to 25 feet. So a lot of birdie range. That's kind of a brighter cut range. So I do think there is some redeeming qualities here when you add in the intangible stuff on top of that that make me think, you know, this guy's Justin Rose. You can't go wrong trotting him out twice over the course of this Ryder Cup to pair with maybe a younger guy. 13, 8, and 2 in his Ryder Cup career. Really great Ryder Cup record. I, I think one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen, and it almost gets forgotten, this is at Medina, in the whole tide of Europe coming back, it's forgotten that Justin Rose had to sink a miracle putt on 17 to keep that going or else Phil Mickelson probably either halves or wins that match. And, and the U S probably goes on to barely, uh, you know, keep the collapse from happening. He just, he has these great moments. I mean, he was so good with Henrik Stenson at Glen Eagles. The guy is just, uh, there's something special about it. I'm not saying he's quite Ian Poulter, but he's not too far off from Ian Poulter, just in terms of how clutch he's been. I almost feel like too, and George, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it looks like, some of the logic, at least in Donald's mind, is that with someone like Adrian Moronk, he's a very specific kind of bomb and gouge, lots of birdies, boom or bust player, right? Like that's what you get with Adrian Moronk. With someone like Nikolai Hogard or even Justin Rose, and then you look at like Fitzpatrick and and Fleetwood, and you get these are like very uh well-rounded players in terms of their strengths are pretty close to their weaknesses they don't have a clear one of either sure they do some elements of their game better than others but you can pair justin rose in four balls just as easily as you can pair him in foursomes with someone i think and i think you could say the same with someone like nikolai hogard whereas you look at a guy like adrian moronk i'm not necessarily sure he's a great fit for foursomes which means that he's he's sitting on two of those four sessions and it's just starts you know when you get guys who are really unique it just starts getting a little tricky um i don't know what what do you reckon no I, i'm with you on that and i think again you're already taking in terms of you know quote-unquote unique with hogar neighbor not necessarily just with their games but hey you, you just have no idea how guys in their early 20s are going to react to this type of environment even if it's a, a pro environment that you're going to be in, in terms of, you know, obviously European contingent behind you, 
Gronk, yeah, it's I just think if he would have maybe shown it in some bigger events outside like it put it this way, considering how bad we thought the Europeans were gonna be scrounging on their tenth through twelfth picks just three or four months ago, the fact that we're even having this discussion and conversation shows you how I think formidable this team is. But yeah, if you kind of look at Moroccan and the rest of the team fit, I mean, I, I, I Seth Strzokel was one guy I kind of looked at him early in the week as a possible pairing with, but that was really it. I'm, I'm with you, Luke. His game just isn't as complimentary as you would think, despite what he can do in terms of in terms of making birdies. But um, yeah, it's it stinks, and then yet I feel for him. I still think it was probably the right call though for Donald to leave him off. Uh, Justin Rose seven two and one in his Ryder Cup career in foursomes. I would bet I would bet anything that he plays the foursome sessions only, uh, and then singles obviously. Uh, yeah, so like that's a great example. Sorry, yeah. just jumping there, but yeah, it's a great example, right? Awkward format for a lot of guys. Justin Rose a pretty well rounded player. I could see him. I mean, he, he. I'm just looking at his stats now. Him and Fitzpatrick have a very, very similar statistical profile. I was just thinking of Fitzpatrick as a as a partner for him in in alt shot. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it, right. It seems like they would never be out of a hole, right? They would always be always be threatening. Exactly. Whereas like, so it's, and it's quite nice in an awkward format where you can, you could trot out those two twice in foursomes, you know, Fitzpatrick will pro- probably play a four ball session in addition to that. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of a nice little mental like package if Donald decides to go that route. Whereas someone like Moronk, you probably start from the base point of not wanting to really play him in foursomes because he could just explode at any sure, given sure, moment. Yeah. Essentially. Um, so yeah, I get it. I, I, I get it. If that is indeed the logic. Um, so who else we miss? Who else should we talk about on these, on these rankings? I think a lot of, there were a lot of non-surprising ones. So just as a reminder, the automatic European qualifiers, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, Victor Hovland, Terrell Hatton, Matt Fitzpatrick, and Bobby McIntyre. Matt Fitzpatrick pipped Tommy Fleetwood at the last moment who ended up getting the first captain's pick. Um, I guess I was a little worried that Sepp Strucker was going to come in for some arrows. You know, I feel like I, I really hope he has a good Ryder Cup. As a, as a fellow transatlantic person who everyone thinks is a bit of everything, um, I really hope he has a good Ryder Cup because I feel like there's a lot of European fans who just aren't quite sold on him. And I slacked you guys late last week and said I could absolutely see some variation of people saying well really it's Stracker who should be left off um but (laughs) he seems to have cruised into this team in some way hard to keep him off right when he's in the tour championship I mean I I think that's ultimately like the the tough his form wasn't that great I mean Joel what do you think I mean what would there have been any justification that didn't ultimately make you wonder if there was some nativism involved if Sepp Stracker was kept off the team no I mean I get it. We've talked about this before. There's just some guys who have a magnetism to him, and he, for for a reason, doesn't have it. And yet, like, it wasn't just the win at the John Deere, which, by the way, that was kind of hilarious when they did the Ryder Cup show and they went right to a John Deere highlight. That's got to be the first time John Deere Classic played into a Ryder Cup highlight. And yet, also, he finished uh, runner-up in two other events, one of them, of course, being the Open Championship. I think that, that Open is what really sold him more so than his then his win the previous week, just because, man, you you finished second at the Open. It's it's that's a pretty hard lead him off. I know he didn't really end the season strongly a- after Royal Liverpool, but heck, I mean, outside of Fleetwood, I would I would I would think Straco is actually probably the the second wild card pick. So, um, yeah, I, I know his game is not as you know sexy as maybe some other guys, but that would have been really hard to leave him off. Um, <laughs> Sorry. It's it's no yeah it's funny you bring that up Joel because I was actually thinking about this over the weekend is that so you know we're in this we're in this world where everyone knows captains picks are the thing that you need because they're they're great right like you want to give captains that freedom and so each team has six but in this yeah, there's like a real lane it seems like where if you finish high enough up you basically can't not be picked you know so it's like no matter what. Even though you've got six captain's picks, it's sort of a name uh, in name only. Because if you finish seventh or eighth, it's like you're basically locked on for a pick anyway. I think like it starts getting really tricky when, um, you know, if you start skipping over seven and eight, 
guys who finished seven and eight, which is what Straka did on the European side, in order to pick guys further down. So I don't know. I just I find myself thinking about that a little over the week. There's an interesting um, thing that it's I don't know if it quite counts, but in the six captains pick era, which has only been one and a half Ryder Cups, right? U.S. last time and both this time. We did have the first example of the next guy in line being left out, and that was Yannick Paul. However, it's only on one half. It's only on the European points list. And so when you look at the world points list, the next guys off were Fleetwood, Straka, Lowry, and Rose. Uh, so it's it doesn't quite count, but we did have something there where it's like, Oh, Yannick Paul. I, it's funny. Nobody yeah, talks about Yannick Paul. Yannick Paul's list is so weird, though. Yeah, Even though yeah. it's a good point, it's just so weird. No, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't quite count, yeah. Yeah, the, the biggest the biggest omission I can not even biggest omission, but the only thing I can think of that was in 2016 when Bubba Watson at the time only had four picks, but he finished ninth. And then you know JB Holmes was ten, Fowler eleven, I think uh, Kucher was the next, and then Ryan, you know, Ryan yeah. yeah. So like that was the only one that even Bubba obviously given his um ridiculousness, I think it was a justifiable one. Uh, Luke, I did want to ask you one thing. Uh, are we, in terms of Nikolai, have we factored in that you could bring Rasmus along and possibly sub him in if N- Nikolai is not playing well and like nobody would be the wiser? <laughs> that is a fat- I hadn't actually thought of that, but it is a fantastic idea. The old switcheroo, you know, like this is freshen him up. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, I used to read Matt Christopher sports books. Do you guys know him at all? Or did you ever read? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. There was one where there were twins who could swap each other's minds via ESP and sort of help each other out. Like one twin was playing, but his brother could basically give him his strength. Are we? Are the Americans doing anything to make sure that Europe isn't pulling something like that with the Hoygaards? That is, you know, this is like vice captain material level stuff, guys. <laughs> I'm really impressed. The, you know, I don't think we've impressed each other much on this podcast, but. You know, I'm, I'm kind of blown away. This is brilliant tactic, tactician stuff. I bet Stuart Sink is the captain in charge of making sure there's no ESP between teams. <laughs> Maybe they need to employ. Who would be like a good blocker? You know, they could like. You know how like in soccer you can like man mark guys, yep. and you're like just follow him around no matter where he goes. Like, who could you just set on Rasmus? You nope. like just stick to him. Make sure he doesn't get in there. Wesley Bryan. <laughs> it has to be another twin. It has to be another twin. Wesley <laughs> Bryan has to be energy blocking on the twin front. <laughs> If Wesley Bryant, if Wesley Bryant is named a vice captain out of nowhere, then you know we're right, folks. If you're listening to this, that is the cool. that is the key that the the uh, Hoygaard protocol is on. It also be good to like test, you know, Keegan Bradley's like I'm gutted to be there, but I'm I'm just so rooting for Team USA. But like, cool, Keegan. Turns out we need you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you just every time they show Rasmus Hoygaard in the crowd at the Ryder Cup, Keegan Bradley's lurking behind him with a <laughs> holding the suitcase up to block that. <laughs> <laughs> the suitcase is now radioactive after the sweat and mold festering in there for for eight years. Or Oh, yeah, that's like gonna that. be a that's, a that's gonna be a real incident when he finally opens that thing, if he ever opens that thing. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I got a question for you guys. If you will entertain me, if you'll indulge me, um, who do you think is going to be the most important person on Team Europe? In as much as this question can even be answered, to produce. So, if you had to pick one guy, where you said, okay, along with getting the points, it's psychologically the most important that this guy shows up. Who would it be? And the and the, um, the inspiration for this question is just thinking back on how at Whistling Straits, in order for Europe to be competitive, they needed John Rahm and Rory McIlroy to be gangbusters. And only one of them was, right? It was only Rahm uh, there because Rory was just having a tough week. So who would that be this time around? Like, who's the guy for Europe that just needs to, needs to be carrying that flag? So I... So I am operating on the expectation that Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, and Victor Hovland are three of the best golfers on the planet right now, some of the most informed. They are going to produce to some degree. I think it's fair to make that assumption, right? Um, I don't think they're going to be total flops. Otherwise, if those guys are total flops, we've lost the Ryder Cup, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm expecting them to produce some level of output. I think someone like Fitzpatrick is the swing vote. Because you can split it when if you have those three, we need to plug in one more guy. And I think that guy is Fitzpatrick. Might be Fleetwood, but 
I think it's Fitzpatrick, who's then who who you can then guarantee some level of output in each of the sessions, each of the days that you assume that they're going to play a sizable amount of them between those four. So I think if Fitzpatrick is in a mode where he's producing, then Europe's in a really good shape based on what else they have in this team. I'm with you, Luke. I had Fitzpatrick circle on that just because not only of what you just mentioned now, but of Rom, Rory, and Victor, you know, they need two of those three to go gangbusters, right? Like there's no way all three of them are going to go lights out, but as long as two, three are good, they're fine. But that's what the preface that Fitzpatrick, I mean, it's not only that Fitzpatrick needs to be good. It's him coming off of two really bad Ryder Cups, right? Uh, not always his fault, especially if you kind of look at 2021, who he was paired with, and yet, that final singles match, I mean, I think we all saw a little bit of it. He was just kind of all over the place, uh, highlighted by that chunk on the last hole. So he's the guy, not only of what they need from him, but just kind of on his past in this uh, on this in this event, they really need to bank on. After that, Fleetwood as well. And that's kind of interesting. Fleetwood kind of came off 2018 as this guy we think we can build off in the future. And then 2021 kind of disappeared a little bit, and his game never has been to the heights as it was in that summer of 2018, not only with the with the Ryder Cup, but just how well he played going into that event. So Fleetwood is a guy now that, hey, we, we need you in this. If Fleetwood falls flat, I would even extend it to him. They need those five guys to really show up to have a chance. Yeah, see, like, I kind of think... Between McElroy, Rahm, Hovland, and Fitzpatrick, that, for lack of a better word, is your starting lineup, right? But of course, you can't play all four guys all, you know, every session, all three days. So you're going to need to tag one or two guys in and out of there. And so, you know, but of the of the remaining eight, there's always one or two guys who just look really good, play well, right? It might be fit, it might be Fleetwood, it might be Abo, who knows? But like, you need the luxury of being able to. Uh, tag somebody in but I think the numbers sort of take care of that problem what becomes an issue is if of those starting lineups Fitzpatrick isn't a guy you want to really play because he's not playing well or not impressing right like when you have those four guys producing to some degree then you're in good shape because you can rest one, you feel good about one of the many other guys coming in, you feel like if you're going to play Fitzpatrick, you've probably got a very good chance of getting something, then it's like you take some pressure off the top guys, it just, a lot of problems start solving uh, in themselves. I don't know, Shane, what do you reckon? Yeah, I like the uh, Fitzpatrick pick a lot. Mine was the, okay, so I'm just looking now, there are nine guys in European Ryder Cup history who played more than one Ryder Cup, so played multiple Ryder Cups and had zero wins. Two of them are on the roster this year, Fitzpatrick and Victor Hovland. I just, uh, Hovland was my answer. I think Fitzpatrick might even be a better answer, but Hovland was my answer just because he's playing so well now that I can see, he's definitely going to go out in that first session, right, with somebody, and I can just see the U.S. getting a win against him and it being, I don't know, devastating might be overstating the case, but it would be a, a kind of plant the flag moment, right? We went out and we took the, a scalp from Victor Hovland. That's a big deal. Uh, and I, I just think like he's a guy where I'm with you, Luke. I expect Rory and Rom to both be there. I know Rom will, and I expect Rory to have, have a big bounce back Ryder Cup. I think Hovland's got to join them. I think they need those three guys to be really good. And if he's not, I would be worried if I were Europe. Yeah, no, it's a good call. I've become really obsessed, perhaps irrationally so, with this. Uh, with a Hovland Fleetwood pairing. I think that would be just really, really good, especially in foursomes. I think they'd be, again, two really well-rounded ball strikers. Um, I think they'd be really good together. And yeah. Good personalities. Do we want to do it for the American side real quick before we go? Or are we, yeah, is, that, is that overkill? Should we just keep this like Europe-centric episode? No, no, no. We can do some. We can touch on the Americans. Why not? So <laughs> if if the swing vote for Europe is Matt Fitzpatrick, I think we all agree. The guy who, it would be, I guess the way I'm thinking about it, it would be weird if Matt Fitzpatrick plays well and Europe didn't have a good Ryder Cup, right? Like, I feel like if a guy's like Matt Fitzpatrick's playing well, then that means that Europe's probably going to be in this. Um, what is that swing vote for the U.S. team? As a reminder, I can read through the team real quick too. Sheffield, Clark, I, you know, I don't want to say a swing vote, but because I think it's not quite apples apples because the one thing U.S. has, I know, Luke, you want to push back a little bit on this, but the depth of the U.S. does give them a little bit more latitude 
where, hey, if a couple guys aren't performing, it's not like the six, you know, six through 10 guys are schmucks. Like, they're, it's a pretty solid um, lineup they have. The one guy, though, I think is not has nothing to do with what we saw the President's Cup, but just Scotty Scheffler's putting, I think, could be a real issue in these type of events. Um, if Scheffler doesn't show up, I do wonder what the collateral damage could be. Um, if, if you're banking on the Xander and can't leave uh, uh, group to, to really produce. You look outside that Scheffler probably burns it and the guys you're probably banking on next. So if Scheffler doesn't show up, I think that one could be a, a very, for, for a guy who's number one in the world, it seems like there's a lot of questions coming in about Scotty Scheffler, where he's at, where his game can translate to this. Yeah. I, I came know. in, I came in with a different answer, but I think Joel's answer is much better. <laughs> he convinced me. I think it's, it's all, it's so funny because the Ryder cup is such a small sample and putting becomes so important that Scotty Scheffler being number one in the world, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, like, is the incremental way he dominates everyone over four days doesn't play in the Ryder Cup quite as much. He can still be great, don't get me wrong, but we saw in the President's Cup how it can go the wrong way. Yeah, I, I think Scheffler's big. And we, I think last time, didn't I, we talk about how, you know, the U.S. number one and two in the standings have been disastrous? Like, Europe is giant killers. They love to beat Tiger Woods. They love to beat Phil Mickelson. They're going to love to beat Scotty Scheffler. And again, just like Hovland, you know Scheffler's going to be out in that first session, maybe with Sam Burns. If Europe can go get a win, that yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, that that's a that's a major, major kind of coup to have for them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think Scheffler's a great answer there. It wouldn't be the same with Europe. It doesn't have to be their number one. But with America, I think the number one really, really matters. Yeah, I've always thought... When when your number one guy isn't playing well, the biggest problem is well, there's two faults actually. It's a two-fold problem. Is that one, it becomes awkward to sit your statistically best player. Just it's just a little you know, even if you should, even if the player thinks you should, it's just weird to sit Tiger Woods. You know, you don't yeah. or whatever. Like it just doesn't quite sit right. And then also, and I think Europe had this in the last Ryder Cup, is that when your best player, in that case Rory, isn't playing well, it kind of takes you a while to figure out that he's not playing well in a very short competition. Right? Yeah, yeah, so like, yeah. let's say Scotty Scheffler shows up in his first session and he loses. You're like, ah, well, you know, Fleetwood made some parts and this and that. We'll play him again in the afternoon. And then he loses again in the afternoon. And then you're like, ooh, okay, uh, should we should we sit him? Uh, we'll play him once more because he's due. Then all of, it's like all of a sudden you can go down this rabbit hole. You're, you've only got a half point out of three matches and you've just figured out on, on Saturday afternoon, oh, Scotty Scheffler is not playing there too well. Uh, it's a real... And, then, real and then it's like with Rory at Whistling Straits, by the time you sit him in the fourth session, it just looks like a major concession. Like you're, It looks like you're rolling over on your belly and saying, you know, like tear, tear my viscera from my, from my torso. It's like a big, it's a big submission almost. The one caveat I'll have on that, though, and we kind of touched on this before. So, yeah, going back to Whistling Straits, when Rory sat on that, I think it was, what, Saturday afternoon, right? Mm -hmm. It was, it was, it did feel like a concession. Like, he is in such a bad shape, and it just felt like a loss, even though it was probably for the betterment of the team that he was sitting. I do think, though, Scheffler is not necessarily this team's heart and soul, right? Probably far from it. He, I mean this in the, in the most complimentary way. He is not a presence that commands everyone's attention and doesn't suck the air out of the room. He is one guy who I feel like, hey, whatever's best for the team, I'm fine with. That maybe that's the one addendum I would have to that is that I don't think it would be as big of a deal if he's playing bad and they have to sit him. So I do think not only of who he is, but also the options they have at their disposal. But yeah, I, I still think though Scheffler to me is the, is the biggest question mark coming into the Americans. Yeah. Yeah, weirdly, even though I totally agree that Scheffler is a super important piece, the guy I actually had in my mind who I thought needed to play well for US teams to play well is, uh, I guess, either one of Cantlay or Zander. And I keep went back to Cantlay because when you have a, just a nails pairing that you can just trot out in any format, they'll eat up a sport, they'll play lots of matches, they're playing well, you can rest some of your other players. You, you just, It's such a nice... It's like having a good running back or something. It's just such a nice fallback to have. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think if one of those guys aren't playing well and then the partnership isn't firing and then you can't play them as much, it means you've got to play other guys. It, I think in some ways 
expecting Scotty to have some level of output. If Cantley just doesn't get it going, it starts getting. I could see a bit of a headache emerging for Zach Johnson. I think a good you know, like a good theoretical question to ask is: If you're Europe, what pair, what team would you most like to beat in that first session? And I would bet dollars to donuts it's Cantley and Xander, right? They want to yes. more than beating Scheffler because she, like Scheffler's not Tiger, right? The answer would have probably always been Tiger in the day. Now I think it's like we want to we want to strike you know right at the heart of Team USA and beat beat those guys. Yeah, I'd say Cantley, or maybe like JT Spieth. We, you know, mm-hmm. like I think if JT shows up. It's like a show of confidence to play a, to play him early, and then he loses. I think that would that feels like a bit of a momentum thing. Sorry, John, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I, I was about to say, Luke, I, I 100% agree with you. And, and Shane, I was about to say something very similar. Of is is knocking down Rory or Rom for the Americans has to be a, a galvanizing force. I really think probably Canley and, and, and Shockley are the are the team Europeans would want to take down. That would be a fantastic question to ask, though, man by man. Which guy do you most want to beat on each other team? Just I think mm. the response is fantastic. Yeah, that's yeah. one one of my favorite Ryder Cup memories in recent history is uh, Tiger Woods just being in such rough sh- Tiger Woods being in such rough shape in France. That's not one of my favorite memories. My favorite memory is. John Rahm playing him on Sunday singles and clearly just so hooked on the idea of beating his childhood rival that he was showing no mercy at all. And yeah. that to me is like, it's even though Tiger's this best player ever, it, you know, he was running on fumes by the end of that week. You could tell John Rahm wanted to beat Tiger Woods, period. Like just wanted to. And it's funny because I bet you get a bunch of different answers if you asked a bunch of different players that. Um, I have, if, if we want to go into final thoughts here, I have two final thoughts for you guys. Um, the first, I don't know if you agree with me. The first one is the addition of Ludwig Aberg. And I hope I'm saying that right. Cause I should learn to say his name correctly I, has made this Ryder cup. I was already all, like over the moon excited for it. It somehow made it 30% more exciting for me. Just the fact that he's there and getting to watch him play. Uh, it's it just, I don't know. It just is. It's like, there's something electric about him. Uh, that's, I, I'm just so glad he's a part of it. And I think that's a really, uh, a cool element to this. Um, and the second thing I want to say, and there's no need to respond to this, but I'm going to see Duke play Clemson tonight in football. And I think Duke is going to stun the world and, and defeat Clemson. And I just want to get that out there. Well, that was, uh, one take was good. I'll give you that. Um, I, I'm with you on Aber because it's been a while. It's funny. I think, we are guilty in every sports guilty of this too, right? Of being infatuated with the shiny new toy. And sometimes we overvalue what could be rather than what is. And yet Aberg and I didn't even throw Hogarth. It's still about, I know he's been around for a little bit, but these are two guys who I think just add another element of excitement on a, on a thing that we're already excited about. Um, he's going to, what's kind of nice. One of the things I really like is there's always one or two guys who the non zealots are kind of introduced to for the first time during the Ryder cup. And man, a- Aberg finally show or getting a chance to show who he is on a big stage to the rest of the world is really cool. And I- I'm also just happy for the, you know, say Europeans in general, but European fans, because I mean, this time last year, there was a real worry about what this team could look like with the live departures. Right. Um, I think that was obviously a little bit overblown, but you were losing Sergio, you were losing Poulter to extent Paul Casey as well. You had no idea who else could possibly leave uh, in the offseason. The fact that the Europeans are going to have a, a really fun, likable young team, more than capable of taking down the Americans, I think is really cool. From from what something this time last year, I really felt like the Ryder Cup was its existence was threatened, and now we're going to get just a really the hype of this is real, and I'm just really excited that both sides are going to have a teams to root for that they should be proud of. Real quick, uh, yeah, we we just got done doing a roundtable that's going to be posted on Golf Digest. I think it already is. Uh, and one of the questions was, you know, analyze Team Europe. What, what do you take away from them? And I had the same exact thought, Joel. I'm like looking at it, and I just spent, you know, 800 words writing about Lowry and Moronk. But then I look at the team, you're like, it's a damn good team. <laughs> I mean, that is a yeah. damn good team. And I, same with you. A year ago, I was like, who are they going to have out there? Like what random like North Macedonian is going to have to go beat Scotty Scheffler <laughs> in Rome? But yeah, it's a, it's a good squad. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, just to echo those points, um, I agree with almost everything Joel said, apart from Ryder Cup record, uh, Ryder Cup, you know, threatening in, its existence, uh, because that's, I've heard that too many times before in my life in order for me to buy into that. But uh, in all seriousness, Joel, like, I agree. I was really worried at the last Ryder Cup. I was kind of worried in France, to be honest, because I was like, oh, like this team's getting a little old. And then they won. And it was amazing. But then at Whistling Straits, it really, I was like in a pretty dark mood there because I thought this is, this is a team and I don't really see anybody else coming up on the rails. And that remained true all, all the way until, you know, about a week ago in some ways, where now I look at this team and Ram, McElroy, Hovland, Fitzpatrick and Fleetwood, let's say, that's a call. That's it. That's a call for the next few Ryder Cups here. And then you look at some of the new guys who are getting worked in between Straker, Aberg and Hogar. Like, sure, you'll see some turnover there, but you're starting to get finally like a bit of the the spine of the team back. And that gets me really excited. And I think if there's been one factor that has helped the U.S. team like get its act together, it's just that spine emerging, right? And I think that, you know, we needed to do a rebuild on the European side. And I, I finally start to see the early signs of it coming together, which gets me really excited. Couldn't Can't wait. Less than a month, boys. All the Sambuca we can want. All the Sambuca we can want. All right, guys. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, next week. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but we'll probably uh, we'll probably go deep on some element of some comment or controversy that's arisen since then. So thank you for coming along for the ride. And guys, it's always a pleasure to, to chat. <laughs>